Welcome to the John Gets Games podcast. In this episode, you'll be hearing the audio from a recent impressions vlog where I discussed my first plays of Festo, Man Muss Auch Gonnenkonnen, Stick'em, and Teach You. Now, if you're interested in listening to specific games and not all of them, then go to the description of this podcast where you will find timestamps to go to the precise spot you're looking for. At this point, I do want to briefly mention that the only reason this podcast is being made is because of the direct support of the John Gets Games YouTube channel over at Patreon. Now, you can learn more about that by going to patreon.com slash Games. and if you like listening to these vlogs instead of watching them, then I hope you would consider supporting that campaign. Now, the final thing I'll ask is that if you have any questions or comments about anything I say today, that you click the link to the vlog that's in the description of this podcast, and then leave your comments on the vlog YouTube page. All right, let's now jump into the list of games, and the first one is Festo, with an exclamation point at the end. Now, this is a game that was published by Game Brewer, and technically it hit the European market in uh, Essen of 2018, so a couple years ago. Now, I actually saw this at Essen when I was over there, and it caught my eye because it's a very bright game. It's got uh, beautiful colors all over the place, lots of vibrant uh, artwork and lots of colored cubes and whatnot. And uh, when I went to Gamma two weeks ago, uh, they had the game set out in the open game night, and they said that they are actually going to be releasing this into the North American market later on this year. So it's going to hit another uh, marketing push, essentially. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about what Festo is. Now this is a worker placement game with a neat little twist. Now the way it works is you're going to go through several rounds, and within each round, there are two phases. Now in phase one, you go in a clockwise order around the table, placing your workers down onto the worker placement spots in the middle of the board. Now I can't remember exactly how many of them there are. There are uh, many of them, like six or seven or something like that. And when you place your workers out, you can put as many of them out as you want to onto as many different uh, columns as you want to. Now, there is one catch, and that is at the start of each one of these rounds, you will, and actually the phases, you roll two dice, and that will block off two of the worker placement areas. So you can go anywhere except those two spots. Now, you start with, I believe it was six workers, so if you wanted to, in this first phase of the round, you could send all of your workers out, and that's it. Now, once everybody has a chance to put some of their workers out, you go into the second phase of the round where you roll the dice again. This will block off two columns, which could be the same two or different ones because it's random. And then you once again go around the table having players put the rest of their workers out. So that means right there at the beginning, you have a pretty interesting decision of where do I put my workers? How many do I put out now? And how many do I hold back? Now, the reason for this is because once we finish that second phase, we will then go through and evaluate every single one of the worker placement spots, and the player who has the most workers there will get a better bonus than everyone else. I'm not going to go into all of the specifics of the gameplay, but you are trying to have a majority of your workers in these different spots. So what that means is, in phase one, you might seed out a couple of workers here or there to kind of show some of the stuff you are thinking about doing, and then maybe hold on to a bunch to put them all out in the second phase, but you don't want to maybe put none out in the first phase because the spots that you really want to go to might be blocked by the die rolls. So what ended up happening is players played uh, somewhat differently based off of the uh, turn order, actually. Um, you know, if a player was able to be the final one to act in the second phase, it seems like they oftentimes placed just maybe one or two of their workers so that at the end of the second phase, they would have a lot of control of uh, taking control of different areas because they had a lot of workers in their uh, reserve still. But of course, that is a risky thing if the spot that you really 
really want to go to is blocked by the die roll. Uh, now, this also means if in the first phase you put down some workers and the second phase the die rolls onto the spot where you put workers down, well, that's locked and that means no more can be put in there. So that is kind of the tension push and pull and really kind of the mechanical gimmick of this game. Uh, now, what you're actually getting from each one of these spots is uh, ingredients. Uh, they come in a wide variety of different colors and you are going to be doing uh, essentially just recipe uh, uh, creation. Uh, you're getting these different cubes and then at the end of each round, you are going to go in turn order, um, making these recipes on the far side of the board that require certain numbers of different types of cubes. Now, I do want to mention that each one of the action spaces does more than just give you cubes. In addition to that, once per activation, you can do the special action for that specific column. Uh, now, they vary. There's a whole bunch of different ones. Uh, one of them lets you get a wild uh, good. Another one lets you get a couple of bonus workers that you can place out in the next round. Uh, another one lets you actually move workers in this round, and you can actually put them onto spots that were blocked off by the dice. So there are a variety of little combo things that people are doing as they're getting these cubes and also trying to manipulate things so that they can get more cubes that they want. Now, the cubes themselves uh, have a diminishing supply. So if lots of people go onto a spot, then not everyone will get those. So all of these things you are trying to balance and then, of course, uh, having the right cubes to finish the recipes at the end. So that's essentially how the game works, realistically. You do um, that two-phase round, I believe it was three or four times. I can't remember specifically. And then once it's over, everybody counts up their points and whoever has the most points wins. Uh, now, the recipes that you took give you points, but also there is a pretty reasonable amount of points that you get for getting different types of recipes. Uh, there are harder ones and easier ones. And so in this play, which was a four-player game, uh, I made it my goal pretty much from the very start of the game that I wanted to try and get a full set of the different types. I can't remember exactly how many bonus points it was, but it was quite a lot, like definitely more than several of the recipes themselves. So right from the beginning, I was gunning to try and get these different recipes done. Uh, now you can uh, fulfill multiple ones in each of the rounds if you can afford it, but those ingredient cubes can certainly be hard to get in a large quantities anyway. Uh, so I was actually very successful in doing this. I can't remember if I did get the full set at the end of the game or if I was one off of that set, um, but I did very well. In fact, I, I won by a pretty large margin over everybody else. Um, now I was new to the game and so were two of the other players. And then there was also somebody from the publisher who was there who uh, taught the game to us and then also played it with us because there was nobody else around who was interested in playing it. And it seemed like we all enjoyed the game. I mean, obviously the publisher will enjoy it. Um, he seemed to be really digging it though. I, I think he definitely uh, enjoys playing that game. Uh, but uh, when it comes to the three of us that were new to it, um, we enjoyed it as well. I mean, obviously this is not a terribly deep game overall, but I did find that twist on worker placement to be a pretty interesting one to work my way through in each one of the phases of the game. Uh, there were some uh, high and low moments as the dice uh, went where I wanted them to or really did not go where I wanted them to. And then obviously you were trying to get inside your opponent's heads to figure out where they are going to push to try and to take majorities. So I think at the end of the day, this is a game that I would have no problem playing again in the future. Uh, there is a bit of uh, variability and replayability baked into the game too, because in each one of the rounds, there is a random event that comes out that could definitely affect things. It might make one of the specific actions on the board more powerful than before. Uh, it might do other things that make it actually easier to complete recipes in that given round or a variety of other stuff. Uh, I only saw, I, you know, uh, four or five of them. Again, I can't remember how many rounds the game was, um, but there was a pretty large stack of them. So uh, overall, I thought Festo was fun. I think it's vibrant. I think it's very quick and easy to teach overall. I've essentially taught you 90% of the rules uh, just going through here without even uh, picking up any 
of the little pieces. So I think for a uh, light to uh, mid-weight um, kind of entry-level Euro game with some neat twists, uh, there's a lot to like over here. And uh, in the future, if I have opportunities to play this one again, I will likely take them up. Okay, let's now move on to the second game I will be discussing, and that is Manmus auch Gonnenkannen, which is obviously a German title. <laughs> I don't speak German, and I'm going to call it Gonnenkannen from this point on, even though I'm sure that's also a awful way to say it in German. But either way, this is a new roll-and-write style game that came out in Germany very recently, and I bought this one on Impulse from Amazon.de. I saw that uh, Eric Martin uh, posted a tweet about it, several weeks ago, like four weeks ago or so, and the game looked so fascinating that I went to Amazon.de and I saw that I could buy it for less than $20 shipped all the way to California, and I bit the bullet. I just went for it because it looked neat enough and that seemed like a low enough price. Uh, now, interestingly enough, I have not played my copy yet, but uh, two weeks ago, I went to the Gamma trade show and I worked with the Board Game Geek team. I, I volunteer with them pretty much every Gamma these days to help them out with their stream. Uh, now, while I was there, I was able to play Eric Martin copy of the game. I actually brought my copy with me, but I still haven't played it yet. And uh, so Eric Martin taught the game to myself and uh, Candice, who is also part of the Board Game Geek team, and we had a great time with it. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about how it plays. Now, when it's your turn in Gonenkonen, you are going to roll all of the dice in the middle of the table. Now, these are standard D6 dice that come in a variety of different colors. Now, after you roll your dice, you will then look at your tableau of square cards that are in front of you. Now, each card has some die requirements on them. Uh, maybe you need to get certain sets of dice that are identical, or perhaps you need to do an ascending set of dice or something like that. And many of these spots have color restrictions, which means you have to use that specific die on that specific spot. Now, at this point, after rolling the dice once, if you can use those dice to complete one of the cards in front of you, then you can, and you can X off all the spots and write little things in, and that card is done, and then your turn is done. Now, it's pretty rare to do that on the first roll, especially early on in the game. So let's say you can't complete a card. Well, then what you have to do is re-roll some or all of the dice that you just rolled. So you can lock a couple dice if you want to, re-roll the rest, and then at this moment, everyone else around the table gets really excited because now that you have done a re-roll, they can take any one of the dice that you just re-rolled and use that value to cross off one of the spots on their cards. So what this means is they are going to make it easier for them to complete their cards in one go on their turn later on because obviously there are less requirements on those cards for them. Uh, now, at this point, you've uh, re-rolled the dice and maybe you can't make it work again. Well, at this point, you can unlock some of the dice you locked earlier and then do another re-roll, at which point all of your opponents are happy again because they can once again mark something off. Once you do two re-rolls, you are done, and if you still can't complete anything, then you can take two of your dice and just mark stuff off with them, or you can randomly take a new card and add it into your tableau. Uh, at that point, you pass the dice to the next person uh, in a clockwise fashion, and you keep playing through the game like that until one person finishes a 3x3 three three grid of these cards in front of them. Now, that is uh, important because this 3x3 three three grid is where you get all of your points. Now, there are two different types of cards in this game. Uh, Half of them are scoring cards, victory point scoring cards, and the other ones are bonuses. Now, the victory point scoring cards um, give you a condition. Uh, maybe it's adjacencies, like um, this card right over here uh, gives you bonus points if there's a blue card on top uh, and on any of the sides. Uh, other ones maybe give you points for completed cards in rows or columns, or other points for specific types of cards. Now, the other type of card are the bonus cards. Now, there are like five different types of them, I think, and they don't give you points by themselves, but they let you break the rules 
rules of the game a little bit. Um, they might let you change the color of a die that you are using in this moment, or maybe add or subtract the pip values from dice uh, that you are using. Um, there are also ones that could be a um, wild color uh, spot, which means it'll match up better for the victory point scoring cards that might want specific colors. So what you're trying to do is balance how many of these bonus cards you take, which will uh, help you unlock more opportunities to actually complete your cards, uh, while also taking some of the scoring cards. Uh, if you have a 3x3 three three grid of scoring cards, that feels like it's probably the best, but you are really hampering yourself with not giving yourself extra pit value manipulations or color manipulations or that kind of thing. Um, so when we were playing this game, I, I tried to go with a kind of medium approach. I got a couple of the different uh, types of the bonuses, and then I picked up a scoring card that gave me points for the number of different types of bonus cards that I had. So suddenly the bonus cards were directly worth points to me, so I tried really hard to get one of each of the types, or maybe not that many, but I tried not to duplicate those cards in front of myself, and then later on I was able to pick up another card which gave me points for different types of these different bonuses. So as you're playing through the game, you're trying to really make this 3 by 3 grid the best scoring thing you can based off of the previous decisions that you've made. Uh, now, I suppose I should briefly mention that when it's your turn, if you can't complete one of your cards, but if you have a uh, three of a kind or a four of a kind, you can use that three or four of a kind to buy new cards from a uh, central uh, face-up tableau to add those cards down into your area. So you do have a decent number of options on your turn. Uh, now, at this point, I've only played the game once because, well, we played this at Gamma, and while we were at Gamma, that's kind of when the uh, coronavirus um, thing really got real in America. So I drove home from Gamma and uh, I haven't seen anyone else in person since then. Um, so I will likely play this again in the future. You can't play it two-player. I just haven't played it with my wife yet. But I really like this game. I, I, I love the decisions that I was making. Um, I was a little worried at first going into it about the randomness of the game. Uh, and a big part of that is because <laughs> when I got the game into my house, I went to BoardGameGeek and there were two reviews already on BoardGameGeek. One video review and one written review. And both of them had a pretty big negative about how random the game was. So I was kind of predisposed to be worried about the randomness. I guess that's a problem with reviews and listening to people who tell you what they think about games. Uh, so I went into the game apprehensive, but man, it really just, it worked for me. I really enjoyed it. There were some great highs, some great lows. I mean, usually lows aren't great, but like that moment when the dice don't do what you want to do or it's great for your opponent, like it's still entertaining because you're still having a fun time as you're kind of going through all of the stuff. And there was a moment uh, where I had just one die to roll and it it needed, it was an orange die and it needed to be a four, I think. And I rolled it and it was a four and I literally stood up and yelled. I was so excited for it. We were uh, playing this game in uh, kind of a, the open area of the uh, coffee shop. It's indoors uh, over there at Gamma, but we're like surrounded by people. And I just yelled so loud. I felt a little bit weird about it, but I was very into the game. I was super vested uh, in it. And of course, um, Eric and Candace were just laughing because of how ridiculous it all was. Uh, so anyway, when the dust settled, uh, Eric won. Unfortunately, I really thought I was going to win uh, with that roll, which was just awesome. It got me so many points. Man, I really thought I was going to have it in the bag. And at that point, Eric said that he was undefeated at the game, actually. I think it was his fourth or fifth play, and he had not lost at all. Uh, so that's an interesting argument against randomness. If the same person keeps winning over and over again, but that being said, they've also uh, played the game the most, so there's experience there. But again, I guess that feeds into the argument that um, you can be good at this game and, you know, work around the uh, the whims of the dice as they come out. So I am very much looking forward to playing this one more in the future. Uh, it is a super neat way to, like, calculate all these points, um, use dry erase markers as you mark this stuff off. And in a lot of ways, this feels like a, I don't know, more advanced version of silver and gold. 
they're quite different games overall. Silver and Gold is also a game with cards where you write on with your uh, uh, with a dry erase marker. Uh, and I actually bought a copy of Silver and Gold. I liked it so much at BGGCon last year. And I still haven't even popped it out of the shrink. And now I'm a little worried that I might actually never play that game because I think I would just rather play Gun and Conan. So um, either way, I have uh, lots of high hopes for playing Gun and Conan more in the future. Although I will probably not have opportunities to play it with more than one other person for many months at this point. Because uh, life is a little weird and I have not found found Gun & Conan online yet. Uh, but either way, that's going to wrap up my thoughts about this one. Big, big thumbs up for me about Gun & Conan. Uh, okay, let's now move on to the third game I will be discussing, and that one is Stick'em. Now, it's possible that you've heard of the uh, previous name of this game, which is Stichhelm, or Stickhelm, again, a German name. Uh, and uh, Stickhelm, what came out, I think we looked it up, it was like 91? I think, or maybe it was 2001. I didn't do my research a long, long time ago, many decades ago. This is a really old game. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was 91. Um, so this is a trick-taking game um, that is all about pain, I guess. I mean, obviously the new name is Stick'em and there is this thing uh, in the game called a pain suit. So I think let's talk a little bit about how it plays uh, and then I'll discuss how this one play of it went. Um, now, mechanically, the way this works is it is a trick-taking style game where you're going to play one card into the trick every single round and then whoever wins the trick gets all of the cards. So that's really standard stuff. Now, the way it works is in this game, there are a number of suits equal to the number of players. Now, if you are the starting player for that specific round, you can play any card that you want from your hand, and let's say I played a, a red card. Now that there is a red card out there, the next person can go, and they can play any card that they want to in their hand. So right from the get-go, this breaks a lot of norms of trick-taking type games where you have to like follow suits and that kind of stuff. No, you can play literally any card in any hand. There are no rules restrictions for this. You just want to play the cards that are good for you. Now, at this point, let's say I put that red seven down and then the person to my left put down a purple two. Now, there are two different colors and the way this works is at the end of a round, if um, every single card in the trick is the same color, then the player who put the highest value of that color is going to win it. However, if there are any colors in that trick that are different than the lead color, then the highest non-lead color card is going to win the trick. So what that means is, as the person leading into the trick, you are not um, very strong to actually win that trick at all. You could play the most powerful uh, card for that suit, like, you know, the red 14 down, and someone plays a purple one, and that's more powerful than your 14 red. So it definitely is a game about uh, not continuing to win pots. Um, now that's the kind of a weird mechanical way that the game works, but the way this all comes together is the pain suit that I mentioned briefly before. Now at the start of each one of the rounds of the game, you're going to look at all of your cards and you're going to pick one of them out and put it face down on the table. At that point, once everyone has decided, you flip it over simultaneously and that card is your pain suit. So let's say that that was a red card that I put down in front of myself. It was a red two, let's say. Now what that means is once this round is over and everyone has played every Every single card that they have in their hand, we will then score points for the cards in our uh, trick pile, the cards that we were able to win from the tricks. Now you are going to gain one point for every non-pain suit color card in your pile, and you will lose points equal to the value of the cards that match your pain suit. So that means I could have six non-red cards, which means I get six points, but if I have a single red six, then that's a negative six points. Also, that uh, red two that I put down to start off the pain suit is also negative points. So that means I started off in the hole minus two points. So what you're trying to do is claw out 
tiny amounts of victory points while dodging the massive bombs of negative points that could be coming your way. Now, obviously, everyone can see what everyone's pain suit is. So while you're playing these cards out, there can be kind of uh, groupthink moments where you try to all play specific color cards so that one person takes a bunch of negatives. Like, let's say I led that red and red is my pain suit. Uh, now, this person plays a red and that person plays a red and that person plays a red. Well, at this point, let's say I read, led with like a red 10 and the 10 is the highest, then I'm in a lot of trouble because that's a bunch of red cards that are heading my way, all of which are negative points. This could be like negative 25 points at this point. Now, at this moment, the person to my right is going to play the last card. If they play a red card that's lower than 10, then I get all of these negative points and I am in a world of trouble. However, if they play literally any other color because it's off suit to the color that's out there, then they win it. They could win that with a purple one, for instance. And then all of those cards are worth one point each for them as long, of course, as they don't match the same paint suit. If they do, then things get even more creative and strange. <laughs> So this game is all about playing the cards that you have in your hand, playing off of your opponents, not being sure what your opponents are going to do, and then constantly being terrified that someone is going to manage to land that uh, 14 value card into a trick that you are winning, because obviously losing 14 points is a big deal. So let's circle back to my experience of playing this game. I I've played it once. I actually remember this being played a bunch in my board game group back in like 2009, and I never had a chance to play it because there was kind of this impression of like, oh, this is a really weird, hard game um, and we are, we're playing it, so why don't you play something else? There's a little bit of a, a, a vibe going on there. So I just assumed it was a really complicated trick-taking game. Well, it turns out it's not complicated at all in its rules, but what actually happens when you're playing this game is your mind just melts out of your ears trying to figure out how this all works because it breaks the norm so much and the strategy behind what cards you pick can be so hard to figure out. Um, now, we were able to play a five-player game of this. Um, we played it actually just after we played Gone and Conan, and uh, we played it with uh, Clay Ross from Capstone Games, who is going to be uh, publishing this again. Actually, they got the rights to it, so that's uh, part of the reason for the rename. Uh, they're calling it Stick'em with the uh, Capstone Games version. Uh, he taught the game, and we played it, and we had so much fun with this game. I mean, maybe just the vibe was good. We played this right after Gone and Conan where I was having a great time, but we laughed so much. There was yelling, there was laughter, there were groans. There were so many high moments as we played this game. And it was a roller coaster for the points as well. Um, the person to my left, Justin, uh, kept getting so many negative points at the beginning of the game. They were in the whole like negative 45 at some point, at one point in the game. Uh, I think we played through five full rounds, like one round per player. And like after the second round, he was still at like minus 40. Now, as I was playing the game, I was able to kind of float even in this five player game. I, I was kind of never doing great and never doing awful, had a couple not so great rounds overall. But then when we entered the fifth round of the game, I was in third place. I think I had something like three points. <laughs> so obviously the person to, uh, people who were below me were still negative at that point. Now I had about three points and Eric Martin had I think something like 17 points and Clay Ross had like 25 or 26 points. He was doing so well at this point. So I was sitting there thinking, well, okay, third place is not bad for the first time playing the game. We started playing through this round and it was obvious everybody was out for blood for the players who were winning. So the first thing that happened within like two hands at the start of this round is Eric Martin got blown up for his pain suit. He took like negative 30 points, just a ridiculous amount. So suddenly, 
he was not in second place anymore. He was way down and I was feeling pretty good. I was in third place going into that round, but still Clay Ross had so many cards, so many points, sorry, so many points in front of him. So we keep playing through the round and here's the thing, Clay's pain suit was a yellow and I had the yellow 14 in my hand. Now there were so many opportunities in this hand where I thought about playing or not in the round where I thought about playing that yellow 14. You know, oh, it would be work in this moment, it would work in that moment, but I kept thinking to myself, no, this could destroy Clay. I need to hold on to this for the moment. If I'm given the opportunity to play this, to just blow up his chances at uh, doing anything. So I kept holding on to it, kept holding on to it. We started playing all of these cards in our hand. It's like 14 cards in our hand. It came down to the very final card in our hands. And it starts off with a yellow card being led. So that happens. And then another yellow card comes down and then Clay has to put his last card down, which is like, I don't know, purple something. I can't remember what it was, but it was not yellow, which means it's now winning that trick. And then Eric plays a yellow and then I throw down my yellow 14. And I think Clay just about fell out of his chair. It was amazing. It was probably like negative 40 points in that one hand because all of us were hoarding the big yellows to try and blow the leader up for the game. Uh, so then <laughs> obviously that was the game being over. I played the last card, which was that yellow 14. And we counted up the points and I won with a score of like, eight or something like that. So both of the leaders were just knocked down from so far up. And I know that maybe this is too much nitty gritty detail for this impressions log, but I just wanted to put you into that moment. It was just so much fun. And also it was cool to see that even a really big lead in this game is not safe at all. Clay was trying to play complete defense. He was not trying to get any points at all. He was just trying to not take any negative points. He was trying to take no risks overall, but we were still able to orchestrate things to completely hose him over. And uh, we just had such a great time. I mean, he had a great time too. He was laughing in anguish when all that happened, uh, just kind of in disbelief that that final round, we were just waiting there to pounce on him and then have that 14 out there too. It was just, it was just wonderful. So. I have to say that my initial impression of playing uh, Stick'em was very high. It was a wonderful moment, but I also have to say that I like everyone I was playing with at the table. Like it was a good environment, a good uh, uh, situation. Like Eric is great, Candace is great, Clay is great, Justin is great. We were just had this really good gaming moment going on. And I can't help but wonder if this game would be a little weird if I played it with other people that I did not know uh, very well. I mean, I'm not super close friends with these people, but I already know these people. So if I was to play this with uh, random people overall, it might be a little bit different, uh, especially if they had trouble with the idea of taking these points. I think you definitely have to go into this game knowing that uh, right there on the box, it's got a person with like a pin. Like this is a game about pain. This is a game about taking po uh, negative points and doing the best thing that you can with it. And I am enamored. I really, really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to more plays of it. I will uh, likely try to acquire a copy of the uh, new print run that's gonna come out from Capstone Games. I don't know how much it's gonna be, but I imagine it's gonna be quite cheap considering it's just a deck of cards. It's bigger than a standard deck of cards because if you play up to six players, then you have six different suits. But still, there's not a lot of cards in that box, but there is a ton of crazy situations and wacky decisions that you have to make. And I am very impressed. I'm very impressed with Stick'em. All right, it's now time for the fourth and final game I'll be discussing, and that one is Teach You. Now, this is not a new game by any means. In fact, this came out in 1991. I remember now, Teach You was 91, and Sid Chellen came out in 1993. That's why I got confused. So this is also a decades-old card game. Now, in addition to not being uh, a new game in general, it's not a new game for me. Now, I've not really talked about it much on John Gets Games, but Teach You is one of my favorite games ever. Uh, I've played it more than any other card-slash-board game, period. 
played uh, probably about 150 games, which is a lot considering Tichu games can vary from 30 minutes to 90 minutes. So that is a lot of time playing this game over the last 13 or so years. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about how Tichu works, and then I'll discuss my play and, you know, why I wanted to talk about it right now. Uh, now, mechanically, this is a card-shedding, uh, climbing-style game. It's not a trick-taking game. That's a huge pet peeve of mine when people call it a trick-taking game. But anyway, <laughs> the way it works is you deal out a standard 52-card deck that also has four special jokers in it. Now, you deal that out to all four players because, well, I've only ever played this at four players. Technically, there's rules for the other player counts, but I've never touched them. Now, I say it's a four-player game because this is a partnership game where you have a partner across the table from you, and then your opponents are these other two people kind of right here, so you're kind of in a square. Now, the way it works is when you're playing through a hand of Tichu, uh, one person leads into that hand with a pattern of cards. Now, those patterns can be a single card or a pair. It could also be a full house or a three of a kind or a straight. Uh, that straight could be a five-card straight or an 11-card straight. You could have some really big straights in this game. Now, once a player leads a pattern, let, let's say a five-card straight, then everyone else has an opportunity to play onto it, and they can only do it if they exactly match the pattern, but do it better. So that means if this is a five-card straight that stops at an eight, then only a five-card straight that stops at a nine or better can be played on top of it. Now, this is important because what you're doing in this game is trying to get rid of your cards. In general, you're trying to get rid of them as fast as possible, there are some asterisks for scoring and whatnot that I'm not going to go into right here, but the goal of this game is to get rid of your cards as quickly as you can, and you're going to try to help your partner to also get rid of their hand as quickly as they can. Now, at the end of each round, you're going to score up uh, the points in the piles of cards that you've taken, and the first team to get to 1,000 points is going to win. Now, I've glossed over how you get points. I'm not going to talk about it here. I've glossed over a lot of things because the reason I love Tichu is because of the Tichu call. <laughs> Obviously, it's called that because that's the name of the game, but when you are playing a hand of Tichu, and if you have not played any cards yet, you have the opportunity to call Tichu. You just say Tichu. Now, it, this doesn't sound like much, but this is what the entire game revolves around because once one person calls Tichu, they are now betting 100 points that they alone will get rid of all their cards before anyone else, including their partner across the table. Now, again, you're playing this game to 1,000 points, so that means if you make your Tichu, then you just got 100 points, which is one-tenth of what you need to win the game, but if anyone else gets rid of all of their cards before you do, then you as a team collectively lose 100 points. Now, this is why the game length can vary so much. Um, I've played games that are 20 minutes long. I've technically played a three-hand game once, which took about 10 minutes, um, but I've also played like two-hour games of Tichu because you just go up and down and up and down as people call Tichu and then are not able to actually make that happen. So this is where the stress and the tension of the game comes into play, and this is also where the fun comes into play. Tichu does the best at simulating gambling without money of any game that I've ever played. Um, I suppose you could play Tichu for money, but I've never done that. But the the feeling that you get when you call Tichu is akin to gambling because you want so desperately to get those 100 points. You want so desperately to not lose those 100 points, and you really, really want so desperately to not disappoint your partner across the table. Now, what that means is this game is all about looking at your hand of cards and analyzing, is it strong enough? Is this the best hand of cards around the table? Uh, can I work my way through getting rid of all these cards in a, in, a, in a pattern to actually make this happen, and can I defend myself enough? And if you did not call Tichu, but your partner did, then you have this other metagame going on where you're trying to kind of read the mind for what they need so that you can kind of help them out. If you take the lead, you can probably try to put down cards that you think will help them to get rid of their cards. There's just so much mind games and mind melding going on with this game, and the highs and lows are supreme as you are uh, seeing these calls happen. 
Now, uh, it's to the point where, in my opinion, uh, a hand of Tichu is not interesting unless one person calls Tichu. And in fact, uh, in the old group I used to play, if uh, nobody called Tichu, then we would call it a friendly hand, and we just try to get through it as quickly as possible. Now, there are ways to get a decent amount of points, even as much as 200 points, in a friendly hand. And again, I'm not going to go into the specifics. But I do want to briefly talk about those four special cards that I uh, alluded to earlier. Now, one of them is the one. It's a value one, so it's obviously lower than two, which is normally the lowest card in a standard deck. Now, the person with a one gets to start things off, and it's a one, and it can go into a straight. It's not that interesting, but when you play it out, you could wish for a card, and then the next time someone can legally play that card, they're forced to, which can be quite interesting. Uh, the next type of card is the Phoenix. Now, the Phoenix is a wild card. Uh, it can be any type of card that you want for any of these different patterns, which is great, but if you have the Phoenix in your scoring pile, it's worth negative 25 points, which isn't good. Next up is the Dragon. You can only play the Dragon when a single card uh, type of pattern is out there. So you can't play a Dragon with a pair or a full house. Just single cards out there, and the Dragon is the biggest single card in the game. And I'm going to stop talking about scoring, but the Dragon can give points to your opponents, which you don't like. But it could let you win the hand. Lastly, there is the dog, which is the weirdest card in the game. Uh, with the dog, you actually play it and you give it to your partner and then they start. So you never actually play the dog amongst any of these other cards. But if you have the dog and your partner is going for a Tichu and you are able to win a hand, then you can play the dog to give your partner the ability to continue trying to get rid of their cards. So there is a lot more going on to this game with grand Tichus and of course the minutia of scoring that I'm not going to discuss here. But I wanted to talk about it here because I think it's an amazing game. I obviously love this game overall, and it was so exciting to teach this to new people to the game and to have them latch onto it so much. Now, here's the thing about Tichu. I have not technically played it in about five years. However, in the previous five years, I've tried to teach it several times, and I haven't logged any of those plays because they kind of died after like two or three hands with people just not getting it. Now, this game does not seem that complicated to me because I've played it 150 plus times, but for new players, it can be a bit overwhelming with all of these little rules. Now, when we were at Gamma and playing uh, Sichelm, uh, I asked Clay if he'd played uh, Tichu before, and he said no, and he emphatically said that he would love to play it, but he's never had an opportunity. Now, I latched onto that because I love this game so much, and he seemed so interested. So the next night, I was able to teach Clay and uh, Justin, who also works with him at Capstone Games, and I was able to rope in Eric Martin to help us out as well. And this is key. And I really want to harp on this because if my enthusiasm has made you want to try this, then I have some roadblocks that I want to tell you about that I want you to avoid. Now, if you want to learn how to play Tichu and you are playing it with yourself and three new people, it's probably not going to work out very well. The best way that you can learn Tichu is to have one or two new people and then have two or three experienced people around the table. Now, this is what happened because Eric Martin is very experienced with the game. I forgot to ask him how many times he's played, but he very, very much knew the game as well. So we were on different teams with obviously new people on the other side. I played with uh, Justin on my team. And I was teaching this rule, the game, and you kind of teach it in phases. It was probably six full rounds, maybe five full rounds, before we taught all of the rules to the game to try and work them into it. And they were loving it. But, again, I've taught this unsuccessfully many times in the past, where just I knew the rules and three people didn't, and it was slow and sluggish, and people didn't understand when they should call Tichu. And, again, if people aren't confident to try and just try and call Tichu, then the game is nowhere near as interesting. The game is all about those Tichu calls. Fortunately, uh, Justin and Clay are experienced card players. It sounds like they played a lot of Euchre and whatnot, and they just jumped right into it. Like, pretty much the moment I mentioned that a grand Tichu could exist, which, again, I'm not going to explain, uh, the next hand, Clay did it. <laughs> it's a 200-point bet, and uh, he... 
I think he made it. I can't remember exactly, but it was just wonderful. So exciting to see the game play out that way. And for a rules teacher to have so many kind of uh, dud teaches over the last several years and then have one work so well, just had me uh, riding on clouds. Like I just like floated back to my hotel room that night. I had so much fun with it because we just had collectively so much fun. Also, there were some wonderful moments with just like zany things that don't normally happen that happened way before we would even, it, it even should. And there was this awesome thing that happened where Eric was sitting to my left and a situation would happen and we'd just look at each other with a smile and Clay and Justin would be like, what? And we're just like, you'll find out in a second. Just because like, just that kind of mind connection of two people who have played Tichu so many times, but never actually played together was also kind of interesting. Especially when you consider that, you know, we've played it so many times, um, but never together. Well, so many of our conventions were the same and so many of our thought processes were the same. And it's just interesting to play this game with somebody else who knows it so well, um, but you've never actually played it with before. So um, I I strongly advise that anyone who's interested in playing Tichu, uh, maybe try to find somebody who likes it, uh, who knows it already, who can teach it with you. Um, if you want to try this with nobody who can teach it to you, if it's like you and three of your friends and you're all new to it, then my biggest piece of advice to you is um, call teach you. Do it as early as you can. Start making mistakes. Uh, oftentimes people play to 500 points instead of 1,000 for their first play. And the only way you will learn how strong your hands are and more often how weak your hands are, the holes in your strategy, is to call teach you and have it lose. And if you call often and you tell everyone, like, you know, let's just go for it. Like, don't be too worried. Don't be concerned. Let's just, if you think your hand looks pretty good, if you got some aces and you got a dragon, call teach you, give it a shot. You might not make it. We might lose the points. We can always stop playing after three or four hands. But even if people enjoy those three or four hands, then you're more likely to come back and play the full game overall. So... I should probably start, stop talking about Teach You at this point, um, but this was just a great opportunity for me to talk about one of my favorite games ever uh, in this impressions vlog. It was a wonderful experience. And one last thing I do want to mention is that you don't actually have to buy this game. You can play this game with a standard deck of cards that you buy because the standard deck comes with two jokers and those two other cards that usually have like advertisements on them, we can just get out a Sharpie and write dog, phoenix, one, dragon on them and play with that. Of course, it is fun to play with the actual cards with a cool art and on it. So I'm not uh, advising people not buy the game, but I'm just saying if you are in a situation where you'd love to try it and you don't have a copy around you, you can. Uh, we actually used some ex-casino poker cards at the uh, uh, Peppermill uh, Casino where Gamma was, and I actually have that in my uh, uh, convention backpack for the future. I will likely play that copy again, or I certainly hope to because I'm kind of reinvigorated after having that great teach go by. I'm like, okay, yeah, I want to keep trying to make this game happen because it's so much fun. Uh, so yeah, I think that is going to wrap up Teach You, and that's also going to wrap up this Impressions vlog. At this point, uh, things are going to get a little bit strange uh, for future Impressions vlogs. Um, obviously, the world is an odd place at this moment uh, with uh, shelter in place and, you know, the uh, coronavirus going around everywhere and all sorts of lockdowns happening. Uh, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area that's been in a shelter in place uh, mode for uh, about in, uh, 10 days at this point. And uh, what this means is I've actually been getting quite a bit of gaming in, but it's all been online with friends. So for future impressions vlogs, I think I'm going to keep trying to do them, but for games that I played online, as I take screenshots uh, in Tabletopia or uh, Tabletop Simulator as I'm playing through these games. So I do hope that there will be more of these impressions vlogs coming out soon, um, but 
I'm not going to be really working through my review pile of actual physical board games that much. Uh, I might play some of them, two players with my wife, Jessica, but um, for the most part, it's going to be a little different in the future. Uh, there's still board games, obviously, even when they're played online. Uh, so hopefully I will have these coming out somewhat often, but I'm not sure how many new games I'll be playing versus games I already know and can teach other people on, uh, on the internet. But either way, I think that's going to wrap up this podcast. Now, again, if you have questions or comments about anything I've said today, then please click on the link to the vlog page on YouTube and leave those comments there. Thanks for listening.